And if you have your Bible, please turn there with us this morning. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. I'll back up and begin reading in verse 18 to give context. Household slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, <coughs> excuse me, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds... You have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's ask God's blessing on our time. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is powerful and effectual, though we who speak it are weak and needy. Everyone here today in Christ has, like a sheep, continually, over and over again, been seeking to run from you. And perhaps there are some here today who are currently doing that. Father, the reality of the gospel and the good news is that because of Christ, his atoning work and your grace in our hearts that produces faith and repentance, we can return to the good shepherd, to the overseer of our souls. Please help me this morning as there are physical and mental challenges and for all of us here that we might hear your word, that we might understand what it is that you're trying to say and that we might be enabled to obey it. And this we ask for the kingdom of Jesus and its advancement because you deserve this whole earth. It is in the name of Jesus our Savior we ask these things. Amen. Well, beloved, let me give you a few quick data points. Um, if you're catching up with us this morning or if you're a guest and you've not been with us, where we have been so far since we started weeks back in verse 18. The household slaves are to submit to their masters. And yes, Peter says they're to submit even to the cruel ones. He encourages them that God's grace is on them during the times of suffering while doing good. But it is not on you when you suffer for choosing sin or practicing sin. Jesus set the example for how we are to live 
and we should follow in his steps. No sin, no deceit, no threats, no sinful hatred in the midst of our trials, but suffering for righteousness. In his suffering for these household slaves and for us, his people, we were freed from our slavery to sin and now are free to choose and live for righteousness. His wounds have cured our cursed souls. And today, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Well, beloved, we have a question presented to us from the text this morning. Why does Peter address the household slaves with this information and add this little tag at the end? Why does he choose to put this little period at the end of this paragraph of instructions to these potentially threatened and wounded souls? For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What does this have to do with the pattern of Christ? How is it connected to the previous thought of our death to sin and our life to righteousness? You likely have seen the realities that he's drawing you to in just two words. Were and now. Were and now. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter's intention is to ground in the history of time gone by, in the past, never to return again, the reality of where these household slaves were and where they are now. He wants to emphasize what belongs in the past and what is their current reality. One of my favorite movies growing up was the trilogy 1985 when it started Back to the Future. You may have seen these movies. 17-year-old cool kid Marty McFly was forced back in time to 1955 where he meets Emmett Doc Brown, inventor of the world's first time machine. In order to get back to 1985, Marty and Doc try to repair the lightning-fried DeLorean time car. I always wanted one of those cars. Upon discovery of the source of the problem, a fried microchip, Marty and Doc share this exchange. Doc says, Unbelievable that this little piece of junk could be such a big problem. And upon further examination, he says, No wonder this circuit failed. It said it's made in Japan. To which Marty replies, What do you mean, Doc? All the best stuff is made in Japan. This realization prompts Doc to reply again, Unbelievable. Well, Christians, I think that our self-evaluation in Christ is often like Doc's view of 1955 made-in-Japan items. Backwards, war-torn, corrupt, and never produces anything worthwhile. But look at what Peter says. That is in the past. You were straying like sheep. You were straying like sheep. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in his first letter to Timothy. He says something similar when he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, 
But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Now as you read that passage... You might think for just a minute, well, Chris, it sounds like Paul's reality is that he currently is the chief of sinners. He says, I am. And yes, it is in the present tense. Had a sister ask me this question last week, and I thought it was a great question. How is it that we're supposed to identify who we were so firmly in the past, being empowered to live for Christ so firmly in the future? And yet here we have Paul saying, I am the chief. Of sinners. Well, beloved, I think the answer is that Paul isn't making an ontological statement. That's to say that he is not talking about who he currently is seated in the heavenly places in the presence of Christ. I am still the chief of sinners. You hear the language that he used previously said, formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. So why does he speak of himself in the present tense? Because he's analyzed his life and concluded that if anyone were to sin as much as they could throughout their lives, you would know wise sin as much as I have to the point at which Christ came and saved me. I've got you beat. I'll always be the chief of sinners. But what happened? He received mercy. He was made a new creation He was made quite different because of the chief shepherd, the overseer of his soul. Listen to how Paul talks all throughout the New Testament of you today if you're in Christ. He says that you are justified. He says that you are sanctified. He even says, past tense, that you are glorified. Sees that eschatological reality as already having taken place in the eternal counsels of God. He calls you a new creation. He says that you are alive to righteousness. He says that you have received and are receiving mercy from God. He says that you're a new man with a new heart, having experienced a new birth, now bearing fruit for God. He says that you've moved from the reality of sin to the place of righteousness. He says that you've moved from law to grace. He says that you've moved from the flesh to the spirit, from the earth to being seated in the heavenly places with Christ, from being in Adam to being in Christ. Now, beloved, there are many of you here that are inclined towards this post-millennial eschatology, this end times view that is Christ will be victorious on this earth And upon his return, the kingdom will already be established. Jesus comes and takes back the earth at the end of what is considered the millennial reign of Christ in heaven. Well, I'm more and more convinced, the more that I learn about this view, that over time, Jesus will, through the work of his saints on earth, allow the world to be Christianized 
until the kingdom of Jesus visibly reigns from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. I wonder, do you consider that that work will take place in your soul? Do you consider that Jesus will have victory over sin and your flesh in your soul? The Word of God promises us right here in 1 Peter 2.25 that there is a reality that is in the past and that is continual straying like sheep. But now Jesus, your shepherd, your overseer rules over your soul. If he will have victory on this earth visibly upon his return, certainly he will have victory in the hearts of his people. And this ought to give us the confidence that every day we can fight and beat our sin. Every day we can be victorious over that which remains in our flesh. You might think today of things made in China. And when we see that logo or that little tag on an item, we don't think very much of it. One day, beloved, we might say like Marty McFly, are you kidding me? Because of Christians and their work in China and the influence of Christianity in China, all the best stuff is made in China. Well, all the best stuff Christ will certainly do in the hearts of His people. This is the will of God, Paul says, your sanctification. If it is His will for His people to be sanctified, is He such a foolish laborer that He will not see it to its end? He will see us sanctified, beloved. He will see us sanctified. There once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub. And he almost deserved it. For those of you who don't know the Narnia stories, Eustace was a real stinker. He was a bad boy. He was one of those nuisance kids. But when I read and listen to the Narnia stories with my children... I don't think about Eustace that way. That may have been where the story started. But Eustace is easily my favorite character in the Narnia series. A fantastic picture of the sovereign power of God to change the life of an individual. Well, before we get too hopeful, before we get too excited, let us look very intently at where we were. Peter starts there with us. He says, you were... Straying like sheep. Let's take a good self-evaluation of our lives and our souls apart from Christ. He says, like sheep, you were continually straying. If you know anything about sheep, there are few animals in the world that are as weak and helpless. They are mostly a defenseless animal. Predators of the sheep include anything in the canine family, wild dogs, wolves, coyotes, etc., Bears, mountain lions, birds of prey. And it has been said that even cats have ended the life of a sheep. That's horrible. If a sheep survives a predatorial attack, it won't usually survive. In addition to death from its injuries, sheep have difficulty fighting off infections and parasites. They can also die as a result of sheer terror. And as a prey animal... One of the sheep's only defenses is to hide any obvious signs of illness that might make it easier target. Sheep are also very unintelligent creatures. They are flock animals. They move together and they don't think independently. The leader of the flock isn't usually a dominant male. 
It's just the sheep that moves first. <laughs> I think Vody said one time, if you're not going to say amen, you ought to say ouch. <laughs> the flocking patterns, flightiness, and fear make them difficult to shepherd, and they are believed by scientists to be just below the intelligence of a pig and on par with the intelligence of that of a cow. Peter's goal here isn't to flatter us. This is the reality of our situation. In an agrarian society, these people would have been familiar with the language of sheep and herding and this animal and its nature. We're not as familiar with that, which is why I take time to describe it. But this is the reality of our situation, beloved. This is why we went astray. A helpless lot we were, and apart from Christ, we are. Charles Spurgeon, comparing people to sheep, once said, The more conscious you are, dear brethren, of your own deficiencies, your lack of stamina, discretion, sagacity, and all the instincts of self-preservation, the more delighted you will be to see that the Lord accepts you under these conditions and calls you the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He discerns you as you are, claims you as his own, foresees all the ills to which you are exposed, and yet tends you as his flock, sets store by every lamb of the fold, and so feeds you according to the integrity of his heart and guides you by the skillfulness of his hands. Brothers, if the last few sermons have suggested to your mind in any way that you are now in Christ, so free that you no longer need him, hear me now. This is not the case. Your salvation is based on his mediatorial work, but you will always need the mediatorship of Christ. When you stand before God on judgment day, the Father ready to pronounce judgment, in that moment you will need the mediatorship of Christ. And every moment throughout eternity, as you worship the Trinitarian Godhead, you will need the mediatorship of Jesus Christ. He ever lives to make intercession for His people. Your freedom from slavery to sin is complete, but that does not mean that you are without a master. You have been made alive and are daily strengthened in Christ. But the moment that the branch departs from the vine, you die. We need Christ. At every moment, we need Christ. Well, the sheep, before they knew Him, before they were in His folds, were continually straying. What aspect of the sheep is Peter principally calling to our minds here? He's talking about those flocking patterns that I mentioned. Those ones that cause sheep to go astray. All of us, Isaiah 53, 6 says, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Your ESV Bible reads, you were straying like sheep. The first word in the Greek is a verb. The root is I me, which is where we get I am. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life. When God told Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, I am has sent you. He's using ontological language here. That is language of our very nature, our being. Now, there's several things I want you to notice. This is in the second person plural. So technically, you have a license to say, y'all were straying like sheep. 
And it's in the imperfect mood, which communicates ongoing action in the past. The NASB reads continually straying. And I like that translation. It adds the word continually to let you know that it was always happening. Always you were going astray. You ever lived to run from God. Before you were in Christ, this was your nature. Not because God made you that way, but because of the radical corruption of sin, you ever lived to get away from God. You ever lived to run from Him. Sin so corrupted the human creature that the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. What Peter is saying to these household slaves is not just you were a sinner, but that your existence was to sin. You lived for it. Put another way, he's saying that before Christ, you existed only to run from God. And this is so easily visible when we go out to the sidewalk to minister throughout the week down at Clinch Avenue. The students, as they walk by, often ignore us and our pleas as we call out to the women going into the abortuary. Some shout at us, not interested in any kind of exchange of ideas. Women and men proclaim that they are glad that they are murdering a child. Some change their stories on the spot from arguing against our calls to save their child to a denial that they're even here for that. Well, I'm here for birth control or STD testing, so on and so forth. And the chief virtue of our day is clearly seen. That is tolerance. You're aware that the tolerance that is called for here only goes one way. But think, beloved, the reason that the lost demand tolerance is because they want tolerance of their continual straying from God. They are begging you to accept the ontological reality in which they live. I ever live to run from God. I need you to understand that and accept me. That's what they're saying. Not my gender identity, not my sexual perversions, not their murderous thoughts or actions, not their love for stealing, not the incessant lying, but... I have to get away from him, whatever that looks like. Gender identity, sexual perversions, murderous thoughts, stealing, lying. And brethren, this is what we must not do. There is only one cure for this radical corruption, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What could change an ontological reality where we are so corrupted that we ever live to sin? It was that the perfect man, the God-man, the perfect God and perfect man combined in one individual, Jesus Christ, came and lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we could not die, nor would we have. All his followers ran. Everyone ran away from him. He alone faced the punishment by himself. He alone bore the wrath of God on the cross for our sins so that by his wounds we could truly be healed of this reality. That's why Peter goes from by his wounds you were healed to you were straying like sheep. This is the depth to which his healing reached. You were this reality, not anymore. 
That is why we can't as Christians walk around and still live in a mindset that says, but I'm a sinner and I'll always be a sinner and I'll never stop being a sinner. Cut it out. Knock it off. Jesus died so you don't live there anymore. He died so you are free. So live who you are. Be who Christ made you to be. And the main point of emphasis in this verse, coming from the past to the present, is the emphasis in repentance. The Greek word here, epistropho, literally to turn around or turn back, is not the word that we usually think of when we think of repentance. I'll read to you from Acts 3, where both metanoia, the normal word we use for repentance, and this word, epistropho, are used. <coughs> Excuse me. The apostle speaking in Acts chapter 3 says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, this he fulfilled. Repent, therefore. It's our word, metanoia. And turn back, epistropho, that your sins be blotted out. Repentance, beloved, takes place in the heart, but it leads to a physical turning away from that which was our reality, continual straying, to something that is so definitively real about us, turning towards God, entering the sheepfold, being permanent members of the community of Christ, of the church of Jesus Christ. You were, but you have returned. I would like to ask this morning, is this a reality in your life? You say I've repented, but have you turned? I've tried. I've made up my mind. I've made some decisions. My mom and dad told me this. I don't like sin or I try and resist it. I'm asking you, have you turned from your sin and turned to Christ? Have you truly repented of your sin being done with it, I'm no longer living in a reality of where I am constantly straying from God, constantly running from Him. I have turned from that, and now Jesus Christ is my life and my everything. Have you turned? Have you really let go of your sin? In J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, we get a vivid picture of this reality. In the first book of the trilogy, the Fellowship of the Ring, Hobbit Bilbo Baggins is preparing to leave his home in the Shire and has willed everything he owns to his young nephew Frodo. As he prepares to walk out of his hobbit hole for the last time, his dear friend Gandalf the wizard asks him if he has truly left everything behind, including the evil magic ring that Bilbo found many years ago. The truth is, Bilbo hadn't left the ring but he intended to steal it away in order to hold his precious forever. Gandalf sees through the ruse and an argument ensues wherein Bilbo seems to become contrite and agrees to leave the ring. And this is the exchange that follows. And now I really must be starting or someone else will catch me. I have said goodbye and I couldn't bear to do it all over again. Bilbo picked up his bag and moved to the door. You have still got the ring in your pocket, said the wizard. Well, so I have, cried Bilbo, 
And Bilbo took out the envelope, but just as he was about to set it by the clock, his hand jerked back and the packet fell to the floor. Before he could pick it up, the wizard stooped and seized it and set it in its place. A spasm of anger passed swiftly over the hobbit's face again, but suddenly it gave way to a look of relief and a laugh. Well, that's that, he said, and now I'm off. Beloved, what a great picture of not just repenting, but turning, letting it go. I'm done with this. I'm not going to be that anymore. Because of Christ, because of his work for me, I can truly walk away from my sin. And yes, you can and you must. We at Christ the King believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord of salvation from beginning to end. Every good thing that happens in our salvation, Jesus is responsible for. And yet, you must turn from your sin. God says, you must repent. You must turn. You must come to Christ. You must do it. And if right now you sense the darkness and the blackness of your heart, if you sense I am still living in that ontological reality where all I do is run from God, today you can turn from your sin and turn to Christ. You can be saved. Crying out to Jesus. This is not a guilt trip. I'm not trying to manipulate anyone. Paul says that the works of the flesh are evident. He means that they are obvious. They're in your face. Anybody can see them. What are they? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Madam, sir, if that is you, you must repent today. If you live in that reality, you live to sin, you must turn back from your sin, from your continual straying. John says in the first letter of John, no one who remains in him sins continually. No one who sins continually has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who has been born of God practices sin because his seed remains in him and he cannot sin continually because he has been born of God. Is God revealing to you this morning that you are still a slave to sin? Please don't ignore it. Please don't write it off as emotion. Don't let the devil snatch the seed of the gospel from the fertile soil of your heart. Every person here today is right now in need of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Cry out to God for Him to save you from your sin. That's why He came to the world. That is why He came into the world. Well, Peter turns from what was the reality of these household slaves to where they are now. 
They have returned to the good shepherd and overseer of their souls. He concludes excuse me, he concludes his words by reminding them of their current reality. Both of these offices, shepherd and overseer, I want you to know, beloved, communicate authority. It is tempting to define words like shepherd with the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, most Westerners have come to associate him with. We love the idea of a Jesus being gentle and lowly, a meek and humble Christ who cares tenderly for his sheep. And here is a great danger. Be warned. We are regularly tempted to think of Christ in terms of what we most want from Him. Do you do this? Beloved, sheep of Christ, do you only consider Christ in the terms that you most want from Him? The world says, I am buffeted and harassed. Give me a Christ who will deal gentle with me. I want a God who will speak to me peace when there is no peace. A Savior who comes to heal my hurts. And what does the world really want? They want a neutered Christ. They want a Christ that will not judge but overlook their sins. That God will speak peace though there is no peace. That the Savior would only heal their wounds lightly, leaving the painful, leaving the infection excuse me, leaving the painful infection that will damn their souls. We cannot emphasize some attributes of God at the exclusion of others and pretend that we worship the God revealed in the Bible. Let me say that again. We cannot emphasize some attributes of God at the exclusion of others and pretend we worship the God revealed in the Bible. I want to give you a current day example of this and ask you to use caution in how you think about God, encourage you to think biblically about God. In 2020, PCA pastor Dane Ortland authored a book called Gentle and Lowly. Since its release, the book has become wildly wildly popular in the evangelical church at large and in Reformed churches in particular. Full disclosure, I have not read this book. Telling you up front. I believe that a study of Matthew chapter 11 in context... And Jesus is revealing to those who remained to listen to him that he is gentle and lonely, lowly in heart could certainly be beneficial. My concern is twofold. First, we need what Sinclair Ferguson calls the whole Christ. You don't need pieces of Jesus. You need all of Jesus. You need the Jesus who says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And the Jesus who right before that said, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Sodom and Gomorrah are going to have an easier day on Judgment Day than you are. We need both. We need Jesus who judges, and we need Jesus who tenderly cares for our souls. Our worship of Christ is not an a la carte. We can't just choose the bits and pieces that we like. My second concern is this. Be aware always when you select books to reading, that you're reading, especially Christian books. Be aware of the spirit of the age. Brethren, there is a war going on right now. This is not a peacetime. Do those who identify as gay but celibate need to be reminded right now that Jesus is gentle and lowly of heart or do they need to remember the triumphant son who will come riding in on a white horse with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth to judge the living and the dead? 
Which Jesus do they need to be reminded of? You cannot say, I have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of my souls, but I'm keeping my continual strength. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. Last night I was reading a little bit more of the Lord of the Rings to the kids, the part when Sam tries to put the elven rope on Gollum's foot, and he's screaming. He didn't even put it on tight. He didn't tie a hard knot. It's the fact that the thing was made by the elves, and he hated it. Like, get that off of me. That's the way sinners act. I don't want nothing to do with God. Don't put me in that sheep pen. I can't go in there. It'll kill me. His eyes, his stare is poisonous to me. We can't write books that make these people feel satisfied in their continual strength. And we can't encourage them to read these things and think, oh, Jesus is so nice. Come to Jesus. He's so kind and he's so... No, they need to remember who Christ really is. Who Christ really is. He is holy. He is righteous and he is good. And yes, he will accept them, but they must turn. They must repent of their sin. Now, look at the office of shepherd, as Peter describes to us here, that we have returned to the shepherd of our souls. Did the household slaves return from their constant wandering under the dominion of their slave master's sin and enter a pasture with a buddy or a friend? No, they came to a new master, a new authority, one who both cares and commands. When you come to Christ, beloved, you don't stop being a sheep. You just become someone else's sheep. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. Listen to this. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Peter's readers would have had these images coming to their mind. And the shepherd is an authority figure. He's not my buddy. He's not my friend. He is my leader. He is over me. He guides and directs. In verse 4 of Psalm 23, which I just read from, the familiar words, your rod and your staff comfort me. The staff is for leading the sheep and helping them to eat and drink. And the rod is for discipline. Both are for authority. These household slaves and we are not so free as we might often think, nor would we ever wish to be. Look at the office of overseer. For you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is a further description of Christ's authority over us. Not only is he the Savior who tends and leads and disciplines, but he is the Savior who watches and sees and knows. The hardworking father who comes home from work, entering his house with a list of wishes and calls for obedience, who sits at the head of the table and requires silence while he speaks and insists on diligent listening while leading family worship, intends on good things and will likely lose his children's and perhaps his wife's heart. Why? Because leadership as a shepherd is only half the job. A father who commands without seeing and watching and knowing his sheep cannot lead. Fathers, I would say husbands here, you like Christ have been given oversight of your family. 
Take time to watch, pay attention to the needs, strengths, and weaknesses of your wife and your children. It is your job. Lead your family from a place of wisdom. This is exactly what Christ does. Not only does he usher and give commands, guide and direct, or discipline when need be, but he knows his sheep. That's why we can trust him. It's not that he now gets to boss everybody around and he just does it arbitrarily. He knows us. He knows us in our frailty and in our weakness. And he knows how far he can push. He knows how far we're not willing to go. He knows what urge he can give us, which to us seems like an unbearable pain, but will promote the righteousness in us that pleases him. He knows. He's an overseer. And fathers, we focus a lot in this church talking about leadership. Be considerate of the flock in your home. Not just of your commands to them, but where they are at any given moment. What their needs are and shepherd from a place of wisdom. Beloved, this is such good news. If we come to the end of Peter's instructions to the household slaves... And you've concluded that since your redemption, Christ has left you with all of these graces and liberties. And now you're on your own. This is absolutely not the case. You were a slave to sin, but now you are a slave to Christ. You were a lost sheep. Now you have been found and are in the care of the chief shepherd. The one Jesus himself calls good. This is the greatest proof that your sin can be overcome each time it rears its ugly head. You are not just free and able, but you have the authority of the almighty ever-living Christ behind you to beat sin and to live for righteousness at every moment. Through His Spirit in you, He has promised to guide you into all truth. Beloved, this is where the power comes from. This is where all the nuclear-powered, weapons-grade, flesh-poning comes from. What sin can so beset you while the Good Shepherd stands next to you, watching you and guiding you? What hour or trial or unending suffering can you not withstand knowing that your new master and overseer who bought you from sin excuse me, who bought you from the sin slave auction at the cost of his own life, now watches over your soul, giving you nothing that he himself knows you can't handle and what can be endured with, and what can't be endured with true joy. To the point where you boast all the more gladly of your weaknesses, you were one who lived only to stray from God, but now... And the glorious present tense, now. You have, through repentance and faith, by God's redeeming grace, come back to Him through Jesus Christ. I want to close with these words from the good Reverend J.C. Ryle. I think he sums up what Peter says very nicely here. Take courage, fainting Christians. You are encompassed with a great cloud of witnesses. He says, consider all the Christians who have gone before us. Think about them for just a minute. The race that you are running has been run by millions before 
You think that no one ever had such trials as yourself. But every step you are journeying has been safely walked by others. The valley of the shadow of death has been securely passed by a multitude of trembling, doubting ones like yourself. They had their fears and anxieties like you, but they were not cast away. Listen to this. The world, the flesh, and the devil can never overwhelm the weakest person who will set their face towards God. These millions journeyed on in bitterness and tears like your own, and yet not one perished. They all reached their eternal home. And they all reached their eternal home because they belong to the shepherd and overseer of their souls. And nothing in the deepest hell or the highest reaches of heaven will ever change that reality. Let's pray. Father, we thank you in that your word so encourages us of what is true, what is happening right now. That what we were is no more. And in Christ, we now belong to the chief shepherd, our overseer, our authority, who cares, loves, disciplines, and ever lives to make intercession for us. All of His grace He has lavished on us so that by His Spirit living in us, we might be more than conquerors. And not just in the life to come, but that we might today walk triumphantly over our enemies, the sins that remain in our flesh. By His power and authority, we can conquer. We can live victoriously. Though we will always need Jesus, though we will always need Him near us for those moments when we stumble, yet we do not have to live lives beset by sin. But as it seems might be the case, in the future, if we must suffer, it will be for bold, courageous, righteous proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. That we will not shrink back from that. And that we will take what steps are necessary now during this moment of what seems like peace to root out what remains in the gardens of our hearts. Because Christ has told us we can. Give us the faith to believe Him, to conquer sin, to overcome it, and to live lives that please Him. It is in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Well, we are going to, as we usually do, convert this room now to our eating space. Since we're going to have our business meeting during the meal, if the people who set the tables up would set them up the opposite way that they normally do. Instead of this way, let's go this way. And that way everybody seated at a table can look up to the front as Jeremy gives us a presentation on some of these financials and other questions that we're going to address today in the business meeting. Well, beloved, 
What a beautiful benediction verse that we have to conclude with today. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty. Amen. Amen. God bless you, beloved. You're dismissed.